Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. You know what it's like to lose all your radio stations? Do you know what it's like for them to put poison in our water supply? Do you know what it's like? And he just... <laughs> and he, I can't go home! Yeah, I can't go home at night! I can't leave my building! I, 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 <laughs> I got people following me! Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Conspiranormal. How you doing tonight, Adam? Doing good. It's another Christmas episode. How you doing tonight, Chris? Oh, yeah, that's right. No response. <laughs> because once again, he failed to appear. There is no, there is no Chris. <laughs> He's here in spirit, though. He told me that he had a date, so he couldn't come. Yeah. Oh, well. He has a date with his uh, computer tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how you been, Luke? What's up? Oh, not much, man. Both my jobs haven't been giving me any hours, so I'm just laying around, thanks to the economy, to the, our great economy. Well, uh, you know, Obama's in his second term now, so you have nothing to fear. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and his inauguration speech just gave me a lot of hope for the future. Right, he walked down the 33 steps... And took the oath. Of the, the, the took his fourth oath, oath of office today. So, being that to, he flubbed the first one, the first inauguration, had to do it again. And then uh, time number three was actually yesterday. We're recording this on the twenty first. Yeah. Because they couldn't have the ceremony on a Sunday for some odd reason, but they could still do it on Martin Luther King Day, which is still a federal holiday. Yeah. But anyway, and then he did the fourth one today. So, yeah. So things, was, things should start getting better. He said the economy was, was on an upswing Oh, okay. Today, yeah, so. all right. Well, I have nothing to worry about then. Right. So, well, anything on your mind before we uh, get started? 
Uh, there's, been, there's so much on my mind, and it's all so jumbled up together that I, <laughs> it's going to take me a while to recall. Yeah, I hear you, man. But, I hear um, you. Well, nothing really new on the uh, Sandy Hook stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk about it anymore well, anyway, to be honest with you. However, I am going to read something uh, right after we have our guest that uh, I think is uh, kind of important to read. But I'll, I'll set that up later when the, okay. uh, the outro. But, uh, well, tonight we have uh, Micah Hanks, who's coming on. He has a book out called The UFO Singularity. And uh, I have been reading his book all day today and just kind of digesting it. It uh, deals with... Um, UFOs in the light of transhumanism, and particularly the concept of the singularity. Uh, it's a very deep book. It goes into so many deep thoughts imaginable. I, I, I really just want to let him bring him on to talk about it. So, but uh, I think you'll find you should find it a very interesting interview. Right on. Uh, just one thing to announcement to make. Uh, we are going to be starting doing something different starting next month. Uh, we have Micah on tonight. The In two weeks, I'm going to have on another guest. But two weeks after that, since we do the show every two weeks, we're going to start doing where we speak here. So we're going to find new stories, odd stories, things that interest us, and we're going to start reading those on the air. I want to get more people to kind of know who we are because a lot of the times we're having the guests kind of dominate the show. Mm-hmm. And so I want us to be, you know, we need to put our personalities a little more forward. Right. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd like some more guest interaction so they could tell us that we suck. Well, <laughs> now this is not guest interaction. This is more just... Yeah, um, I, I got you. Right. Or I mean listener. I meant, I meant listener. Yeah, listener. Yeah, okay, listener. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I'm going to be figuring out how to put this show on iTunes, which I should have done like months ago. But uh, hopefully be getting that done soon and get out to a wider audience. But I just want us to kind of, you know, so what what we're going to do is is we're going to have a show where it's just us, hopefully the three of us, reading and discussing stories and having a good debate. And then the show after that will be we'll have a, we'll have a guest. Yeah, um, we may interrupt that possibly in April because I kind of want to bring a, uh, another guest on uh, for actually two times in a row. But <clears throat> what we're going to do is so it'll be one is just us, and then the next one will be a guest, and then one is just us, and the next one will be a guest. One thing I'm kind of interested in uh, lately here, I, I still haven't researched it yet, but I've been meaning to look at some things about it. Um, back in the seventies when they terraformed the planet to, uh, yeah, this actually, this actually happened whenever they repaired the ozone is what they did is they, they terraformed to, uh, lower the temperature like around the globe. So like global, that kind of like just destroys global warming. If the, if that is still all like substantial, like I don't, I don't know yet. You sure it was the seventies cause the whole ozone layer thing was something I heard about in the eighties. Okay. Maybe it started like in the late seventies or something and. Uh, now over. And now it's said that the ozone layer has actually repaired itself. Yeah, but they, they say repaired itself, but the stuff I've been reading says that science repaired it, huh. which, which just takes, if that's true, and you know, I've read some more about it, then that just takes out the whole global warming thing entirely. Well, gather those sources 
and you know start reading about it on yeah. the show. So that's one thing I'd yeah. like to look into. And what we'll do too is I'll try to have links up to each show. You know, you need to send me links, and so I have links up for each. You know show they'll have like a news kind of like the links to the news story inside of it so people can follow along with what we're talking about right uh and as we still never discussed the geoengineering stuff just no. briefly i think and in, we could do a whole show on that probably right it just you know get all your sources get all your sources together and make sure you know it's all in mla format now <laughs> uh, so yeah that, that would be something that uh that we could definitely do and as far as Chris, I'll let him know, you know, but what, uh, you know, kind of what I'm kind of expecting uh, to do here. I think him and I had already kind of discussed this anyway. Yeah. So he definitely wanted to try to move kind of towards where we could, it was just us speaking. Uh, I think we've had, I want to say about two shows really where it was just us. And then there were a couple other shows where we maybe did about, like, I think the one with Andrew Hoffman, we did about an hour with us, and then an hour with him. So it was almost like a two-hour show. Yeah. I think it was like an hour and 49 minutes. I remember something that. Like that. Yeah. Uh, so, I think the other one, we, the only ones we did other than that was, like, the, the intro show, and then <clears throat> we did a show on where we couldn't get a guest on where we talked about the, uh, the Aurora shooting. And uh, we kind of did 30 minutes last week on the, or last time on the uh, Sandy Hook stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, and, and uh, more, we, we probably need to talk a little bit more about the whole gun control thing and what's going on with it. Yeah. Recently, I was, I was listening to a little Fox News last night while I was at McDonald's and, uh, well, they're, I know they're, about they're Fox News or anything, but, you know, they're, they're putting not out my favorite personally. Well, every, I keep hearing that from people, but everything I hear from Fox News is in support of, of, of withholding the Second Amendment and stuff. So, I mean... They're in support of withholding yeah, the Second last Amendment? Yeah, last night they were trying to educate uh, people on Fox News about these different weapons. They're saying, oh, it looks big and scary, it looks intimidating, but, you know, this is a small caliber weapon and stuff. They were demonstrating it in firing ranges and everything on TV for people to see. They're, like, in support of... And, it, you know, it, it's... I don't know. Everything well, that- is... That kind of sounds like to me, because you've gotten a lot of these, um, uh, the, the, the media in this country has talked about how, um, uh, you know, the, the meme right now is assault weapons, assault weapons, right, you know, yeah. the whole like Piers Morgan thing yeah. with Alex Jones, which we can talk about, uh, you know, that's the whole meme and they're trying, and what I think they're saying is, is that people are, uh, they're saying that it's an assault weapon, but they're, they're really they really aren't. I think that's probably what they're what they're talking about on yeah. that show. Yeah, I don't. That that is. Yeah, they were. It the, would be really surprised me that they would. At, every, so far, I mean, I don't. Of course, I don't like watch Fox News very much. But so far, every time yeah. I've listened to it, like it, I'm in support of everything they're saying. Yeah, I can't really understand. I can't really uh, stand them at all. But then again, it's about the same for MSNBC for me too, which I end up watching. Yeah, because CNN is just dead boring, <laughs> except for. Monotone segue when Alex Jones and Piers Morgan. Oh yeah, that was. What'd you think of that, that about that man? We probably I, talk about this with Micah since he does an awesome. He makes Alex Jones he makes impression. politics fun. He makes politics fun for me. <laughs> Alex Jones. Yeah, it's like I'm not even listening to anything to do with politics. I could just listen to it and it's it's a good time. <laughs> and let me tell you, 1776 will begin again if you don't try to 
take away our gods. I can do that voice too. <laughs> I can do that voice too. I'm a fancy British lad. You know, I'm, I got mixed feelings about that whole thing. I think Alex kind of came off looking like a total buffoon. But then again, at the same time, he got a lot of information out there uh, that you probably were never going to see on right, CNN. Right, yeah. Dr. Future was was talking to us a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he made a good point <clears throat> that... Um, you know he was he might have been belligerent the whole time, but it but they would have just cut his segments in their favor anyway yeah. for the, so. And you know what the the thing is, and a lot of people I've heard a lot of people say, you know, here's the conspiracy theory about the conspiracy theorists have been saying that hey, you know, Alex Jones uh, and Piers Morgan they set that up, you know, it was a big setup. It was like Andy Kaufman in wrestling in the eighties, you know. Uh, and but <laughs> you know it gave Piers Morgan like better ratings, and it gave Alex people more people went to Alex Jones's website probably, and Alex Jones got a ton of publicity off of that. Right. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was a setup necessarily. You know, you know something that kind of supports that too a little bit. What's is, that? Is that if if Alex is so on to him and he's he's uh, digging and he's finding all these facts like he claims yeah. to be. Why hasn't someone tried to stop him? Why isn't someone trying to take him off the air? Why hasn't someone trying to assassinate him? What's going on? Yeah, it makes Why? you wonder. <laughs> Man, there's a lot of people that just think that Alex Jones is a total fake and that he's really, you know, you got you got these conspiracy theories of people saying that Alex Jones is like he's a CIA agent or he's a Mossad or he's he's really a secret scientist yeah, and, I, and he's he's a Catholic Jesuit and all this kind of stuff. I, and, I love him, but I can't really put that outside the realm of possibility yeah. most of this most of those conspiracy theories come from uh followers of a guy named william cooper who wrote a book in the 90s called behold a pale horse and william cooper was real controversial he talked about ufos he talked about you know uh illuminati and all these different kind of things and a lot of and, and a lot of people because william cooper and a very young Alex Jones at the time had a, a huge disagreement. And so th- there's like a war still going on. A lot of simmering hate toward, towards Alex Jones from that camp. You yeah. know, those people really. There's a guy on my Facebook that uh, I probably would like to get on the show. He's kind of real outspoken. But, but uh, he, 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 he like is always down in Alex Jones and putting like really weird pictures of, Al- of Alex Jones and talk about how he, like Alex Jones has this... Uh, uh, intern that used to work for uh, some CIA-based firm in Austin, Texas, and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, it really, it really makes you wonder, like, if Alex Jones isn't like controlled opposition almost. Right. But right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have uh, been with Alex Jones and later have decided they didn't want to have anything to do with him. There's yeah. a guy named Mark Dice who used to be like a really good buddy of Alex Jones and then all of a sudden he's like putting all these YouTube videos out there saying how Alex Jones is a is a liar and how he's like a he's he's almost like a cult leader and that, all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and, I have my own problems with Alex Jones, but and, I don't know about any of the rest of that stuff. And uh kind of, kind of on the same subject, uh I've been seeing a meme on Facebook about uh, like three political activists that have recently died from like different deaths. 
one of them was the co-founder of, of Reddit, whatever Reddit is. I don't even, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think that was, uh, was that uh, Adam Schwartz, I think? He's the guy that came up with RSS feed. Some, yeah, I and think there was so. another two guys that were gun uh, like rifle manufacturers or something like that. Right. One one got uh, one got killed uh, uh, by a car crash, and the other one was um, was shot in his driveway. Okay. And then Adam Schwartz, which had nothing to do with guns, he was a computer. He was basically like kind of like basically like computer uh, hacker nerd. You know, he came up with RSS feed. He's only 26 years old. Yeah. And RSS feed's been around for a while, so he right, must have been right. really young when he did that. But he hung himself. And What's he, going on? He, he had been against uh, SOPA and PIPA and all that kind of, uh, yeah. you know, online piracy legislation that a lot of people say is really just a way to restrict the internet. Right, but, uh, which it is. We got two minutes to call Micah, okay. so let's, uh, let's talk about this on the other side. Okay. Right, guys, well, we will be back on Conspiranormal, and I'm going to read something that, uh, about Sandy Hook that probably make a lot of people mad. But let's, uh, let's go to Micah, and we'll be back. All right, and we're back on Conspiranormal. It's your host, Adam Sane. You know me. You already know me, too. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, Luke, for anyone that doesn't know. And tonight we have our guest with us, Mr. Micah Hanks. And he has written a book called The UFO Singularity. Uh, we had him on back in early June of last year. I believe he was like our fifth guest, I think, on the show. And uh, we're, we're proud to have you back, Micah. Uh, my pleasure to be here, guys, as always. It's a fantastic show. And uh, Lord knows I've been doing a few, uh, a few shows lately promoting this book. So, uh, you know, glad to be on this one again. What did you tell George Norrie you were coming on here? I did. I had to warn him. I said, now, George, look, you know, I don't want to cause a, a conflict of interest or anything, but I'm going to be going back on that conspiranormal where, it, well, it's anything but normal on that program, actually. So. Yeah, that's the truth. Well, uh, Micah, um, yeah, I've been reading the book. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it is a very quick, easy read, uh, but there's a lot in it, and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, you, uh, I think you've done something that... Uh, it may be unique in the fact that you've done something where you've taken like UFO, ufology and mixed it up with uh, with you know transhumanism uh, and the concept of the singularity. So, in your book, of course, it's called the UFO Singularity. So, I just want to kind of get briefly, uh, you know, maybe just a little introduction for those people that don't know you, and then kind of let's, let's kind of talk about what the UFO singularity is as you see it. Well, sure. You know, I'm. Maybe best known for the website GraylianReport.com. Uh, you know, I've been a guest on a lot of these different radio programs uh, in promotion of this particular book. You know, I've done Coast to Coast and, of course, uh, Whitley Strieber's Dreamland. And so it's been really interesting to be able to take this to the UFO crowd and then to those who might be more interested in abductions research. Because in this book, you know, I take a pretty unconventional approach not only to ufology. I touch on abduction and I look at a lot of the, the more, uh, you know, down-to-earth kind of reports of abduction. And, uh, and that, that's kind of really become my thing over the last few years is looking at things from a fairly unconventional approach. And it's become an inherently skeptical approach that I tend to take just as well. Now, I'm not one of these people who's going to tell you that I think, um, you know, everything can be explained away and that there's nothing legitimately strange or unusual or anomalous going on in the world around us. Quite the contrary, I feel that there is a lot of mystery to this world. 
but that you know rather than leaping to conclusions and saying that maybe we're dealing with extraterrestrial intelligences you know alien beings from outer space that's always going to be a possibility until we prove otherwise or until we conclusively know for certain that yes there are alien beings visiting earth uh, but uh, you know until proven innocent or guilty whether whatever the case may be you know we're going to have to remain uh, kind of stuck in the midst of a lot of different possibilities and potentials. One of those, of course, has to do with the potential that we are being visited by extraterrestrial life. And then there are this entire host of other potentials uh, that could constitute what appear to be an incredibly advanced technology right here in our midst. Those are UFOs. And when, it, when we come to this, this, this definition of, of the UFO singularity, what I was trying to drive home with this book... Uh, you know, that is essentially something that both is a, a kind of a phrase unto itself, as well as being a reference, a nod, if you will, toward transhumanism and the study of technological implementations in the future that will kind of meld and morph uh, the humans of today. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're all going to be cyborgs walking around. Uh, I, I'd spoken recently with radio host Richard Sirrett. And, uh, you know, he had brought up the, the concept of what if there are you know, people who augment their intelligence in the future and there are humans on Earth and this causes a great disparity of some sort and thereby there's some sort of a, you know, a war or literally some sort of a conflict that erupts from this. Uh, quite the contrary, I would say that, you know, if we utilize technology to a point where we can literally get to where our technological developments are indistinguishable from what you or I might, you know, call organic today, there's a good possibility in my mind that we will be dealing with technology in the, in the future that would be capable of changing fundamentally who we are and maybe even how humans evolve, but that would not really appear as what we would consider something cyborg or synthetic by today's standards. This is what transhumanism basically involves, and if we take that one step further and say that we already have what appear to be, as the Singularity Institute defines te, uh, the uh, UFO, or rather not the UFO singularity, but the way that the, uh, the uh, Singularity Institute defines technological singularity is the creation of greater than natural levels of human intelligence. If we look at UFOs, we already have an incredibly advanced technology, several decades at least, ahead of what we know to exist here on Earth and on conventional civilian levels. And so at what point does our technology that we know to exist begin to mirror that of what we see in these UFO reports? That point is what I call the UFO singularity. And yes, it very much does incorporate advanced futuristic intelligences and technologies that we will hope to attain in the next few decades into the equation of what kinds of technologies might already be out there. Are they our own? Are they secret technologies from here on Earth? Are they something from outer space? They could be any number of different things. And we look at all those potentials in the UFO singularity. Uh, Micah, one of the things that you talk about uh, is that you don't, you don't pin it down, like you said, to any kind of one idea. Um, you, you, you leave it open. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, the conception of uh, when they hear UFO, most people, nine, nine times out of ten, would probably just think of space aliens. And you do a good job with the, in the book of pointing out how, you know, it could be that, possibly, even though you yourself really don't think that that's the, the, the real reason for it. Um, but it could also be a transdimensional thing. It could even be people from our future, which I think lends into your whole idea about uh, about the singularity. That at a certain point, you know, after the singularity, uh, when there's a bunch of transhumans walking around, that they would perceive time in a different way, and that uh, not chronologically as we do now, but then they would just be able to go back into the past to just 
view historical events, you bring up the Foo Fighters um, as possibly that they're like tourists looking at, at past historical events. So I found that really interesting. It is. It's a very interesting concept. You know, again, we have to look at the potentials that may uh, be afforded humans in the future, uh, the, the way that we perceive uh, space and time today already, uh, and then the, uh, you know, the possibilities in terms of how that will begin to change as we evolve, or effectively, if we are to again equate this with transhumanism, uh, you know, what happens when we begin to literally take evolution into our own hands and change fundamentally not just what we are or who we are, but how we continue to shape and change what we will eventually be. I think it's a very interesting concept. And, you know, I bring up this book that I think, I believe it was uh, not Jules Verne, but I believe it was H.G. Wells who had written uh, uh, The Man of the, of the Year Million, I believe. And I, I touch on that in the book just because that this, uh, this idea that he puts out in this book that was, you know, published, gosh, you know, a long time ago, I think it was 1893, um, he describes what he thought people of the distant future would look like, and he essentially described them as gray-skinned, diminutive beings with large heads. I mean, come on, that sounds so much like the denizens of the alleged UFO craft. Right. I, I couldn't begin to tell you what is actually going on. Um, I think, uh, to be honest with you, if, if folks want to get a good idea of, uh, of what I think is the closest to the complete explanation available to us in the present day... Uh, I would recommend the season, the second season episode of Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, where they actually do the the episode on Area 51. Now, granted, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty dramatized. You know, they got all this stuff where Jesse, right. Jesse stands off against the guards of Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really amounts. To, if anyone's seen it, to Jesse, and the, you know, granted, I actually have a lot of respect for Jesse Ventura. They they uh, they contacted me and wanted me to be on that program. Now I'm, I'm, I'm beginning. To get uh, word that, uh, that that program may be short-lived if it's not already uh, good and done for, just because you know I get the impression Jesse's kind of a the kind of guy who likes to make his own rules and call his own shots, and so we'll we'll see if that show continues on. I've heard some things, and I think everybody's been hearing stuff on the blog sphere and whatnot. I certainly don't have any inside information, but uh, you know I have a lot of respect for the governor because you know whether you think he's crazy or not, he is somebody who really says, "Hey." I'm going to call BS if I see it. And he did the very same thing with the popular extraterrestrial UFO meme, he and the producers of that program. And that episode, although highly dramatized, uh, you know, him standing off against the guards really amounted to a pickup truck appearing and him saying, you know, it's not worth it, and they turn around and leave. (laughs) Uh, As many probably have done when they get to that level of, oh, wow, there really is something going on here, and there's something that's going on in terms of, you know, clandestine government operations and and things of that nature. Um, I think that episode really kind of puts it all out there pretty well. They have uh, Michael Shermer on there, I believe. Or no, 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 it's Michael Schratt. I apologize. Who's the uh, the expert on uh, technologies existent today, which of course are are highly secretive, but likely uh, account for the majority of UFO sightings out there. And so when you look at this sort of body of research, uh, you know, even though again it's highly sensationalized in that format, that episode of Conspiracy Theory, the whole thing's available on YouTube. That really takes you in a surprisingly similar direction. Uh, to my my own book, The UFO Singularity. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, you know, in terms of the technologies that may be present here on Earth, 
I think that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than what we are already aware of. And frankly, that's not the part that interests me all that much. Um, but, but what does interest me about this is when we look at this from the perspective of transhumanism, we have to think about this along the lines of, well, if it's not available to the public, then a few decades from now, various technologies that will begin to you know, literally, re, uh, literally reshape what we are and who we are as humans – they will become available if they're not already beginning to be available, uh, you know, on a more conventional level to the general populace. And when that starts happening, this is the kind of technological singularity that people like Ray Kurzweil and a few others are already speculating about. My gut tells me that we're seeing the beginnings of that technology already behind the scenes, but eventually yeah. it's probably going to be something that is uh, f- much further reaching uh, here on planet Earth, and when that occurs, we will begin probably to change what we know about not only ourselves but how we will approach you know cosmology and becoming a spacefaring nation or world or civilization uh, and so when we think about how humans of the future might for instance colonize space, utilizing what we would call these post singularity technologies that I go into in the book. You can't help but wonder, and this is where it gets neat for me, as opposed to the old conventional model of what extraterrestrial life is or how they would travel through space, we have these new exciting potentials for how post-singularity technologies, whether they be human or non-human elsewhere, how they might colonize space. And it gives us a whole new model, a whole new approach as to how we might understand the ways that extraterrestrial life and aliens might actually populate parts of space that we have not even thought about for the large part up until now. And one of the things you talk about in the book is is that uh, the fact that we may just be dealing with um, we may be dealing with with machines of of something that is possibly something out there that has already reached the point of singularity. That's correct. That, that with that melding of uh, the transhumanists, say you know the melding of of human and machine, uh, that and since it's so the, the the space the universe is so big and so vast. That this, the distances are so massive that just a, a normal human body and even just the speed that it would take to get there probably wouldn't even survive. Exactly. So, you know, you would need something that would be more kind of like a machine, almost like a machine with a soul in a way, so to speak. Like, And that goes into, you know, artificial intelligence and AI. Exactly. That's that's exactly the, the 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 idea here. I even bring up in the book Transformers, you know, because I mean, really, the Autobots, <laughs> you know, Sam Wickwicky, you know, I mean these these characters in in the Hasbro, uh, you know, uh, uh, universe, I guess, and of course, uh, you know, uh, immortalized on the big screen now with the films. Uh, those characters, we think that robots are cool. Uh, Decepticons are extra cool because you know the law of of evil. Robots states that uh, you know giant. Robots are cool, and giant evil robots are double cool. But of course, uh, they were cool too because they just didn't turn into cars either. So they, they turned into a variety of things. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know so, some of the lamest Decepticon transformations of all time, though, not only included just turning into a gun that was wielded by another Decepticon, but I think one of them turned into an audio cassette tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. You know, this is what's so funny, and this is yeah, we'll actually take this in an interesting direction here in a moment. But <laughs> we have this this 1980s analog technology and an, a highly technologically advanced artificial post singularity intelligence from outer space transforms into <laughs> a cassette tape. I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of like you know in the Buck Rogers you know comics and stuff like that, or going even further back, the Martian Chronicles. You know, they're 
you know, humans in, in, that have colonized space in there, you know, still using swords and, and wearing tunics and underwear and stuff like this. You know, I mean, it's like our conception of what sci-fi is is really kind of a blending of what we perceive of the future with a lot of what we, you know, already have taken from the past. The Middle Ages, you know, the Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. Tolkien and mythology and, and even Westerns. You know, I heard George Lucas once refer to Star Wars as being really actually a space western it's a western story just set in space you know again there <laughs> here we have the ability to create an incredibly advanced weapon uh, and they create what a lightsaber you know it's like we had swords what you know several centuries ago and let's let's use our greatest technology to make a better sword <laughs> so you know technology and the way that we perceive it in sci-fi is kind of funny at times but you know when we when we look at things like the, the transformers or we look at even things like the terminator films we we often have this Hollywood conception of what artificial intelligence will be like. And so one of the number one questions that people ask me is, do you think that when we actually, again, you know, to borrow the Singularity Institute's uh, definition for singularity, which is the creation or the reach of a technological creation of greater than natural levels of human intelligence, i.e. the creation of artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, people often ask me, do you think that when we actually create intelligent machines that they're going to rise up against us and destroy Earthlings? And again, I say, well, maybe no less likely than the Decepticons transforming into a cassette tape. Perhaps no less likely, you know, than, than Buck Rogers, you know, watching a black and white television screen. I mean, <laughs> you know... That's fiction. I think that in the future, the ways that uh, artificial intelligence are going to emerge and begin, you know, and this is what's really strange, I would even argue that maybe the beginnings of artificial intelligence are already here. Um, the reason for this is because when we think about futuristic artificial intelligence, is we often imagine that there is a machine capable of thinking and that its you know, thought processes are going to be more or less identical to or at least incredibly similar to what we know to be human thought processes. We understand very little about what causes humans to think the way that they do. We think we know a lot, but I think that we're really just scratching the surface even now. And as we continue to close that gap, I think that's something that we're going to begin to understand about the nature of consciousness and the way that machines will likely think is that if we take into consideration such concepts as embodied cognition, a lot of the way that humans have evolved to think may stem from our, anthrop uh, our anthropomorphic shape, you know, our humanoid figure. And the uh, influences uh, that that is, you know, had on our on our uh, evolution and our thought process and the and, and the evolution of thought. Uh, if you had a a variety of intelligence that exceeded natural levels of human intelligence, but it was embodied within a machine, you know, it's not going to have reproductive organs. It's not going to have testosterone raging through its veins. It's not going to have a methodical way of thinking that is driven toward power for purposes of conquest because humans evolved to, you know, literally fight our way to the top. And, the, you know, of course, the, 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 the survival of the fittest is the old term, and that's very much still something that governs and dictates, you know, law and policy and politics and, and government, you know, in our, in our Western modern so-called civilized society. See, all these things have really affected who and what we are. I would argue that a machine intelligence would not be governed by those same chemical and evolutionary uh, you know, mandates, if you will, and that in all likelihood there would be a very vastly different kind of intelligence that would emerge from intelligent machines. If that were already in our midst today, would we recognize that as literal intelligence? Would it be the same kind of consciousness that you or I would have? We might not even recognize it. And some theorists have even begun to say, and this is the real mind-blower, 
that the computers that we're already working with that are hooked up to the web, the web literally already has begun to behave similar to the function of a human mind and that for all we know, the beginnings of artificial intelligence might not emerge from some sort of a cyborg creation that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger or that's going to look like, you know, an, an Autobot that travels from Zeta to Reticuli, you know, and turns into a, uh, an 18-wheeler. It very well could originate from something as, as simple and everyday as the World Wide Web. And thus, when we come down to, uh, to uh, Optimus Prime, we learn your language from eBay, you know, that the... <laughs> That could be a lot more. It could be a lot than we realize. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's one of the things that you point out too is that um, uh, that as much inform- we keep just putting information and information onto the internet, and that uh, the internet itself could become kind of some kind of sentient being. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I never had really thought about. I think you you uh, used to illustrate that a, a science fiction story. I can't remember which one that it was that uh, that you used. Yeah, yeah. Robert Heinlein. Is yeah, Heinlein, yep. Yeah, fascinating story. Well, uh, with with all the falsities on the Internet and everything, they could get the wrong information. <laughs> we could easily shut them down. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is, I mean, there there is a lot of crap out there on the web, but I think that what's important about the, the, the Internet is that we're already seeing a transmigration of human intelligence. All the summation of mankind's knowledge is, it may not all be readily available. You know, for instance, when we... Uh, Think about uh, what was the uh, the kid's name? Uh, Aaron. Uh, oh gosh, I had it. Uh, he, he was the fellow that you know made front page news, and he was the co-founder of Reddit. It'll come to me here in a moment. Oh, we but, were just talking about him, Adam Swartz. Yeah, that's weird. We were just talking about that right before. Synchronicity. We, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. When Schwartz, uh, you know, passed away, what they'd gotten after him about was, you know, he'd uh, well, one of the things he had hacked into the J Store. Uh, you know, academic journal website. He was a, a, a web activist and a real proponent for. Uh, you know, essentially what would be considered, uh, I guess, you know, transparency on the web. He didn't think that things should necessarily be, you know, kept for one group or the other. Now, really, there's a fundamental issue with that, and the obvious problem is that, you know, if a person wants to, you know, withhold certain information from the public for purposes of charging for it, you know, and thereby capitalizing on a venture, I mean, obviously people should have the right to be able to profit from their enterprises, um, you know, this ended up leading him to uh, getting in a lot of trouble, and then, of course, he committed suicide. I'm waiting. You give it two more weeks, and there'll be a conspiracy theory associated with oh, short. No. It, it's already there. Is it really? I figured yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a, it was pretty much instant. Yeah. <laughs> I've been waiting for it, you know. I just must not be looking hard enough. But, but the reason I bring up Schwartz is because, uh, you know, JSTOR is a representation of certain information that is not available to everyone on the web, but that doesn't mean that the information isn't there. And what's interesting about the World Wide Web is, again, the, the, the entire summation of all humankind's intelligence is beginning to migrate to the Internet. Colleges and universities are literally changing the ways that they teach their college courses, and they're teaching students how to memorize less, and instead they're supplanting that with an ability to know how more effectively to go about searching for information, which they don't have to be able to recall like in, in the days of old. And You know, yesteryear, if you were a particle physicist, you had to be able to remember certain equations, and there were certain key phrases and equations that you kept you know, on your mind at all times, and you would have to go and you'd be able to recall these things so that you're working out your stuff on a chalkboard. You know, you'd be able to have, you know, be able to lay hands on those key, uh, you know, terms and those key equations or whatever that you might need. 
Whereas today, if you need a refresher on E equals MC square, you go to the web. You look it up on Wikipedia or you find a, a website. Or if you're, of course, you know, an, you know, a member of the academic circles, you can have access probably to something like JSTOR, as uh, Schwartz had tried to gain access to. So the thing is that with all this knowledge migrating to the web, humans not only are putting all of our information in a great big what could be likened to a digital brain, but what we're also doing is we're relying more and more on that big digital brain that is the Internet to keep that information for us and we remember less and less and less and the, and the reason we remember less is because we don't have to do it anymore if there's a great big brain that we're using that does it for us think of the internet as a great big external hard drive and we're literally storing ourselves on that hard drive so at some point the next logical step is to create actual computer brain interfaces that will literally allow us to download or upload aspects of ourselves and our memories and our thoughts and, you know, also, you know, import information into ourselves, perhaps. It sounds very far out, but I guarantee we're already seeing the beginnings of that kind of technology right now. In your book... uh, Sounds like Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Facebook. Facebook is actually what's going to become sentient. Facebook. Probably. <laughs> that, is, that is the great, that is the World Wide Web summation of Carl Jung's collective unconsciousness. Uh, Facebook, dude, and I'm sorry, you know, Adam, I know we're, we're going to come back to the question in just a moment. But I just, yeah, no problem. I do want to point out, though, <laughs> how often have you gone on a date and the person that you're going to go out on the date with already knows your birthday? They know where you live, where you work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> People, people meet in the bar. They don't go out to get to know each other. You know, people stalk each other at the bar, and then they get on Facebook, and they stalk each other even more, and they find out everything about somebody on Facebook. I mean, you know, truly, it's really breaking down the very barriers of what once made us as a society. And a lot of people think that's bad. I don't think it's bad. I think it's just very different from what we're used to. But, yeah, Facebook is already – that something so simple as social networking is fundamentally changing the way – that we operate, and even how we, uh, you know, uh, interbreed and, 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 and interact with one another. It's very interesting. It, it, is, um, it is extremely interesting just how much Facebook has just become this, like, portal that everybody has to have yeah. now. <clears throat> it's, like, it's, it's always, like, you know, I know at work, and, like, Luke can attest to this, too. He does it. Like, you've got to have the Facebook open <laughs> every day. day yeah, yeah. All day. It, yeah, it's... I think about that all the time too. A, a, just a mass shifted consciousness in the way everyone collects their information and everything now is, it's crazy. Just, <laughs> yeah. it, and and uh, you know, I seriously attribute the internet to uh, causing you know me to have ADD. Growing up with it, every I've, <laughs> yeah. I've been on um, I've been on the internet since 1995. You know, so uh, I'm, I'm you know that's not the only thing that. I blame my ADD on, but that's definitely a contributing Luke factor. Luke can barely remember a time without the internet. Yeah, true. And I have I have a lot of trouble, re- like you were saying, recalling things a lot of the times. Well, you know, and that's the thing about uh, the, the, the web. I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, now let's look at a hypothetical uh, doomsday scenario. Uh, where where uh, mass coronal ejections from the sun uh, of, of of incredibly large magnitude uh, you know literally break down the uh, the um, electrical infrastructure 
you know, they take down the grid, so to speak, here in the United States and perhaps other parts of the world. Let's say that the entire world is thrust back into a veritable dark age and that we literally no longer have that Facebook. We no longer have all this information, our data systems, access to our bank accounts that are now largely managed on online. And rather than the actual physical currency that once used to be carried around in everyone's pocket, probably 80 to 90 percent or if not more, I'm sure that there are economists out there that are laughing and saying, oh, you think there's real money out there? You know, the majority of the money that we utilize for international transactions is actually represented by numbers in computer systems. And as soon as this, this great big electromagnetic pulse takes everything down, let's just assume for a moment that we're stuck in a world where we have <laughs> no uh, you know, tangible money of any actual value, of any kind of wealth. Uh, we don't remember aspects of ourselves because we've put that over into a digital substructure that has been decimated. What kind of a world do we live in then? You know, Are those few that were brave enough to get off the grid? And when I say off the grid, I'm not talking about living in a cabin out in the woods with uh, you know, solar uh, panels on the, on the roof and a, and, a, and a great big hole dug in the ground that they go and uh, you know, use twice a day. No, I'm, I'm talking about guys who got off Facebook. We were the smart ones. We got off Facebook before anyone else, and we were the survivors. <laughs> I mean... But that could be what it's like. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know if you got to go to that extreme. Just if like if Facebook goes down for an hour, people start to freak out. Yeah, that would cause more mass pandemonium <laughs> than any of the conspiratorial stuff we've been talking about lately. We could do a whole film about this. You know, <laughs> Asheville to Nashville is only a, uh, four and a half hours, guys. We could collaborate yeah. this film. The day Facebook stood still. <laughs> you, know, so, um, you get Alex Jones to narrate. Uh, that was I saw what you did there. <laughs> but if we were just to suppose for a moment that Alex Jones were going to uh, to uh, narrate this, I suppose it would sound something like this: uh, Folks, we can live without we can live without Facebook, but you know what? You're not going to take our guns. That's perfect. <laughs> so take our guns. We're going to deport you back to it. We're going to send you back to Britain. Your red coat. <laughs> well, I was wanted to talk about this a little later, but. Uh, Go ahead. What did you think about that, Micah? <laughs> we were talking about that right before. <laughs> ladies, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the new book is The UFO Singularity. Bookstores <laughs> everywhere and on Amazon.com. And now Micah Hanks, Alex Jones. <laughs> Here's a... <laughs> we'll get back to the book. <laughs> that's, that's fine, man. We've been talking a lot about the book, and I want everyone to go out and buy it. It's a quick read. I think it's a good read, you know, and you can also find out about it on my website. But, God, there's so much stuff going on out there in the world, and I want to talk about all of it. Alex Jones, um, we all knew he was crazy, <laughs> but 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 now there's absolutely no question left in our mind. <laughs> I mean, that guy, you know, I don't really care for Piers Morgan all that much. Um, let's look at Piers Morgan for a minute. He was involved in these phone hacking scandals. He comes over here, he gets handed a primetime television program on CNN, and really basically makes his uh, makes his name off of belittling people. On a primetime television program, okay, uh, he uh, he he has he's one of these journalists that to me uh, is if really the uh, what they try to call the responsible journalistic etiquette uh, variant of a shock jock, okay. And uh, his job primarily is just to have somebody come on his program that he thinks he can disagree with. Now, Alex Jones. Uh, it's hard to figure Alex out sometimes. Alex Jones, I think, believes in what he is doing. Alex Jones, I think, is someone who also believes uh, in the movement that he is trying to be a proponent of. I think that the problem with Alex is that 
all too often, perhaps, he gets, he gets caught up in the character of Alex Jones. Hunter Thompson used to do this back in the day. He would, he would get caught up in the, in the Raoul Duke character, you know, that was in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And the, sure. act, the actual journalist that was out there uh, got lost somewhere <laughs> along the way. And he even wrote about this. He said, you know, when I do these, these uh, appearances, uh, you know, people would hire Hunter Thompson to come out and do an appearance. And I'd, I'd end up having to show up, and people expected the character from the book. People expected the journalist, the wild, crazy, drug-addled alcoholic, you know, who had been writing for Rolling Stone. Alex Jones, here he is, and I loved it, from the very first moment. Piers Mo- you know, Morgan's up there talking and everything. He says, my guest tonight has actually hopes to try and export me. He has got a petition up to try and have people export me from the United States. And so they, they zoom in on Alex Jones, and he, stand, he sits there, and you can just look. His, his breast swells with patriotic pride. Yeah. <laughs> King and everything. And He's then, glaring at the camera, man. And it's basically, it's basically in round or in our first corner we have, you know, and Alex gets up there and he just absolutely goes for it and blows it. He blows it through the roof. You know, he said on his radio program the next day, you know, I give myself about a 90. (laughs) (laughs) He gives himself 90, but here's the truth. Here's what really happened. Uh, Piers had Alex on there. Alex showed his ass. Alex uh, did what Pierce didn't have to do because he made himself, even if his points were accurate, valid, and, and, and at times, I, I use this word with caution, but at times they were reasonable points, uh, the way that he presented that information did all the work for Pierce. And Pierce, on the other hand, just had to sit there and say this, Alex, Alex, yeah, yeah. Alex, calm down, Alex, <laughs> Alex. Let me just say. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say, Alex, Alex, <laughs> and and meanwhile you've got this. <laughs> just goes for thirty five minutes, <laughs> and, then, and then and this is where it gets even worse. Then Pierce starts throwing some, and yeah, Alex had a lot of facts. He brought his paper with him and everything. Sure. He was ready to go, but then Pierce threw a couple of just a couple of 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 factoids at him and caught Alex just ever so slightly off guard. And then Alex starts doing his British accent. Yes. Yeah. Can speak in a British accent to don't mock your host. Don't do that. He got nervous. He reacted to it. He started making a mockery of the <laughs> thing, you know, because <laughs> he's so used to, he's a radio host. He's so used to being the only guy sitting there talking. He didn't give his host an opportunity to even get a word in edgewise, and it made the entire movement look bad. If you want to get a good analysis of the entire thing, Go to Ground Zero. I guess it's ground, the GroundZero.com. Uh, you know, Clyde Lewis is pro. Clyde Lewis, yeah. I did listen to some of that, yeah. Clyde is pretty funny, um, and, I, and I mean that in, in a good way. That show, <laughs> Ground Zero is hilarious. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> you, you'll hear him like, you know, a guy will call in and everything and say he's possessed, and you'll hear Clyde go, wait, you hear that? Listen, listen. You can hear it coming through the phone right now. <laughs> My gosh, and there'll be like some static on the phone line. Wow, man. Man, we're getting it right now. So it's a little silly, and obviously it's entertainment. Everybody knows this stuff's entertainment. But Clyde did the best breakdown I've seen on his website. And there's a video. If you go to the, his page and scroll down, there's a video where he you know, analyzes the entire Piers Morgan, Alex Jones thing. It's really the best analysis I've seen. Shows what a schmuck that Piers Morgan really is. But it also shows that Alex went way over the top, and it was really just two ass jacks sitting in a room uh, on stools aside from each other. I mean, it, was, right. it was a sad state of affairs. Micah, you do the most uncanny Alex Jones impression yeah, of anybody. Really it's just like it's just like he's actually in the room. 
I'll just, just get you on here, and I'll say I had Alex Jones on here one day. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have Alex Jones. Guys, thanks for having me on the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I've, I've been telling him that we need to fake uh, situations for the longest, but he, he won't let me. It's he, integrity. <laughs> I'm going to have to bid on that one. Tonight on Conspiranormal, we have controversial radio host Alex Jones joining us uh, discussing gun control. Alex, what are your feelings about this? Well, guys, first I want to thank you for having me on the program, and I do want to tell you, uh, you know, I haven't got a lot of sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm burning off of about three hours of sleep right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I do, I do, I do want to talk, talk, talk to you about my new sponsor, Survival Seed Bank. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then, then the, the microphone is completely overridden at that point, so you have to be really careful. So. <laughs> right, exactly. It's over. Um, I do want to ask you, getting back to the book, enough fun. Uh, the the um, the Mike Reese story that you relate, I found that a very interesting story. Uh, I found it interesting too that you use that in the book in the part about physical uh, manifestations instead of just kind of going through a whole list of. You know the, everything that you know. Probably most people in in ufology would really know, like Roswell or mm-hmm. some other sighting here or some other sighting there. You go through this this story of a guy that you've actually had the time to actually sit down and talk to, and have actually gotten his story. And uh, I just want to kind of relate that story. I think it'd be important for our audience to hear it. Well, sure. You know, and, and what's funny is that that chapter, one of the earliest reviews that was done about the book. Um, was uh, yeah, which is the website? I I don't recall the, the exact website that had done it, but uh, they they had written that they thought that that chapter was boring, banal. You know, they said that they that, that I'd gone way too in depth into a story that wasn't that interesting. Uh, and when I when I when I uh, met Mike, I was interested in in his story because not only had he had a close encounter. I mean, it's not every day. There are a lot of UFO researchers out there, and I've, of course, spoken with a lot of people who claim to see things, but it's not every day that you meet somebody who has, uh, you know, well, he didn't at the time have a background in engineering, but since that sighting that occurred in his early 20s, and, you know, of course, that was, uh, gosh, well, that was 40 years ago, 1973, right? Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so for Mike, uh, you know, he was a young man when this happened, but he went on to get into engineering. Uh, he had a... Uh, he had actually served uh, four years, uh, you know, in the in the military, and he actually worked at Fort Knox. He had, um, you know, he would go on to, uh, uh, you know, be interested in a lot of different things, uh, architecture and and all sorts of stuff. And so Mike was interesting to me because he had this interesting background. He's a country boy. He's a good guy, but he's a very intelligent person who who you know just doesn't put on airs. He says he's very matter of fact about it. This is what happened to me. I haven't talked about it since that happened, except with my family members. Because uh, it really freaked them out, and when I talked about it to coworkers and other people, uh, right around the time that it happened, it really, really kind of made them uncomfortable. I, you know, I, he had he had gone and spoken, for instance, to a guy that he uh, he worked with about the experience the very next day, and he said that the guy just kind of looked at him and took his glasses off and gave him the old <laughs> "Mike, are you really going to go down that road now, buddy?" And so he said he never felt comfortable talking about it. People. I think with that guy that uh, I got the impression reading it that the guy he spoke to. Uh, he had a feeling that he could relate to that to that gentleman, but then the guy just kind of just, you know, avoided him after that. Yeah, and think how that makes you feel. I mean, when yeah. you when you do feel like, okay, who do I talk to about this? It's like, okay, 
let's say you're diagnosed with a with a really peculiar disease, and it's not exactly the kind of thing you want to go out and tell the whole world about. It's like God, you know, who who can I, who do I share this information with? I mean, I don't feel right just sitting on this, but I, I you know I got to talk to somebody. But I don't want all my friends to know that I'm about to grow antennas out of the top of my head. You <laughs> know, I mean, I'm sure that's how Mike felt, and and so he goes to work, and this friend of his, they talked about astronomy and things like that a lot, and he tries to tell this guy about what they saw, and the guy just acts like Mike's crazy. Mike's not crazy. I know Mike. I've hung out with him, and we've we've had dinner together on many occasions. Mike actually, since then, has become a very good friend. Um, he even uh, you know, supplies news stories and things from time to time and moderates a group called Encounters with the Unexplained uh, on uh, Facebook. And um, actually, it's Encounters of the Unexplained is what it is. But anyway, Mike um, is one of these people who really uh, you know, struck me as being a legitimate kind of person. And so I took time to try and, you know, flesh out this story with him and he said well heck you know drive over to Hayesville which is you know about two hours away from where I am in Asheville and he said come over uh, you know we'll have dinner at this nice restaurant and then I'll, I'll get my sister who was with me there that night uh, you know and some other family members too and we'll all come out you can just compare notes with us all the only person that didn't join us that night who didn't want to talk about it was his ex-wife but he had invited her to come just as well sure. and the, the, the stories were remarkably similar. The reason I dug into it, though, was not only because, okay, there's one guy who tells a credible story, but with his incredible, I would say it's truly an uncanny ability that Mike had to be able to recall certain details about the behavior of the craft. I tried to put together in my mind things about the craft and the workings of the craft and things that I felt might help us understand a bit more about what's going on and what kind of of, of you know what kind of science might have been employed by this object and and really what Mike and I both after talking about that a good bit we came to a pretty obvious con- conclusion we both felt that this craft whatever it was is in all likelihood something uh, from right here on Earth I don't think that a lot of these flying saucer craft are from outer space now does that remove the possibility that at some point in our past that one of these things did crash on Earth and maybe something was back engineered I don't think that it's impossible. That that is that, that that could work into the equation somewhere. Um, by the same token, I wouldn't even undermine uh, human ingenuity uh, by saying that uh, that that would necessarily have to be the case, because as we know, at least to an extent, from our study of the Second World War, and I get into this in the book just as well. By around 1949, we start hearing a lot of stories coming out that were talking about Nazi programs and that they were allegedly working on some really advanced physics there. Uh, in Germany, but of course the Nazis were also running really, really, really thread line, uh, threadbare on uh, on their uh, uh, you know resources and, and, and the like, and so it was difficult for them to really see through a lot of the things that I think that they'd hoped to try and do. And if they'd had more resources, <laughs> the history of the United States and of course the rest of the world might have uh, carried on in a very different fashion. Uh, you know, especially in terms of uh, you know the resources the Nazis would have needed. You know, the further enrichment of uranium. We do know that they were working on. Not just, uh, you know, this silver bird, I think, which was a, a craft that would have gone into, a, you know, near space and would have carried essentially a dirty bomb to a city like New York and would have really caused a lot of trouble. They had also been working on 
on uh, you know uranium, and I think that uh, the, the the submarine, the U-boat U-234, yeah. uh, when it was uh, actually apprehended, this isn't in the book, but you can find information about it elsewhere, and there's a great video series on YouTube as well. Yeah, Jim Mars talks about that. Yeah. Jim talks about it. Yeah, Joseph Farrell has talked about it a good bit. And, uh, yeah, the U-234 scenario is very interesting because what we see in that instance there, <laughs> I remember the night I met Jim Mars, as a matter of fact, he started telling me about this. I was sitting in the, uh, the uh, Grove Park in in Asheville, North Carolina, and Jim Mars walks up, and he was in town for an event that a friend of, of, of mine and I were putting on, and uh, and he comes up and sits down, and I said, Jim, what are you up to? And he says, well, I've been working on this thing. It's going to blow the lid off all this. He says, because I'm going to talk about how the Nazis actually are still out there working. <laughs> what we're dealing with is actually the fourth Reich, and that the Nazis, Hitler and them boys, they never actually... Well, they, they they weren't ever taken out of power, and they're actually still in you know behind the scenes. He, so he goes through the entire thing. I mean, it was just incredible. <laughs> so, um, but at that time, you're killing of, me right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you work in radio for so many years, it was funny because we had to learn how to be able to do uh, different voices when we were voicing spots and things. And it's a it's a, a trait I picked up that you know <laughs> I can mimic. Certain people, not everyone. I can mimic some, <laughs> but anyway, all that to I've say, met, I've met him too, Micah, and he is just like the coolest. Like he's like your old grandpa, you know. He is. I call him Uncle Jim. You know, yeah. I wanted to have him at Paradigm Symposium twenty third. Yeah. Uh, at present, he has another obligation, but if he if his schedule clears up, you know, he told me to check with him in the summer, and so that way we might still get him out because I haven't seen Jim in years, and I'd I'd, l- I'd like to get him up to Minneapolis just to just to be able to. Uh, catch up with him. But that said, Jim and so many, so many others have already looked at the history of how Nazis were utilizing incredibly advanced technology. I don't think that they, pardon the pun, but I don't think they got a lot of it off the ground. But I do think that there's still a stark potential that the beginnings of certain technologies that would later find their way into covert programs, things like this, that probably resulted truly in a lot of the saucer technology and things that we see out there today. A lot of this technology, no doubt, is from right here on Earth. And you don't even have to look any further than Earth to be able to find the impetus for that and the beginnings of those kinds of technologies. But then again, that doesn't remove the possibility, as I go into in the UFO singularity, that by no means removes the possibility that there could be alien life elsewhere out there that utilizes very similar technology. If it's, if it's the most you know, logical uh, design for a craft that's supposed to be able to travel in an interplanetary flash, uh, fashion, you know, to have a, a saucer shape or a cylinder shape or a sphere or whatever, uh, you know, then it's, it's very plausible that, you know, there are going to be other intelligences out there that will utilize similar designs and similar modes of, and, te- uh, and technologies that will allow uh, travel through space. But I also think that a seriously, seriously advanced technology, and we're talking, you know, hundreds or thousands of years more advanced than uh, human civilization on Earth today, probably would not be utilizing physical modalities of travel. Uh, you know, and I think that the very most advanced stuff that we see here on Earth that really blows our minds, we're talking about UFO craft that can move silently through the air and move at thousands of miles per hour, render themselves invisible, evade radar systems, and do all kinds of incredible things. Those those probably are dwarfed and are somewhat infantile when compared with the kinds of maybe even what we would consider non-physical technologies that are already being wielded by intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. I I argue in the book that we might not even recognize that variety of life as being life as we know it, because there could be levels of physicality that transcend what human perception will allow. Yeah, it could just be like a rock. It could appear less than a rock. You know, think I bring this up often in interviews uh, because I think it's the best. uh, You know, the best way to put this out there. Think about 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know, they 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 at the end of the film, um, 
what is it? It's not Major Tom. I always think Tom because of that damn song by... Dave says Ground Patrol to Major Tom. That's the one right there, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, Dave. Yeah. You're scaring me, Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, you know, when Dave travels to Jupiter and beyond the infinite at the end of the film... You know, he kind of has a psychedelic experience, you know, which is what my last book, well, the book before last, dealt with. And, uh, God, how many books? Jesus, man. Holy God. But anyway, so either way, you know, I think there are a lot of different potentials in terms of what the quote-unquote, putting up the air quotes here, the alien life that we might expect would be in relation to the kind of actual different intelligences and variations of conscious um, intelligence that may actually exist. Speaking of... Psychedelic experiences. You do go into, um, I believe it's the chapter after where you um, relate Mike's um, experience. Um, the possibility of there being some kind of a mind control aspect to this. That's something that we've talked about a lot on this show is mind control and MK Ultra, anything having to deal with that. Uh, I find it interesting you found an article that I think is like about uh, a little over 20 years old in which the guy had posited that a lot of these alien abductions may be more like a cover going on for experiments, brain experiments that are going on people. Um, he, brought up the, he brought up the Betty and Barney Hill um, experience where it just seemed like the technology, these they had the technology to travel from a different star system, but they, you know, had surgical masks and uh, and used like um, you know anesthesia and and all these kind of things that are more you know available to to just human beings at that time. Right. You know, um, I'll tell you this. Let's start with the Betty and Barney uh, Barney Hill abduction. Yeah. There's so much dirt about that. I hear Bryce is able, uh, who, who's the guy that uh, put together the show Dark Skies back uh, a few years ago on television. He also co-sponsored that, uh, that We the People petition with Rich Dolan uh, about uh, unidentified aerial phenomena and co-authored the book After Disclosure with Rich Dolan. Um, I wonder if Bryce is able, if he, if he goes forward with this Betty and Barney Hill film that he's talking about doing, I wonder if he'll include the dirt that was associated with that story, along with the, uh, the you know what we know to to uh, to be factual about that, and I'm not trying to discredit Betty and Barney Hill. Barney Hill, especially, was you know uh, considered a very um, I think he was actually a member of the city council in his in his town or something along those lines. You know, these were highly intelligent, uh, you know, upstanding members of their community, Betty and Barney. Uh, the only thing, of course, that the, that was working against them for that time period. And of course, we look back at this and kind of roll our eyes now. But at that time period, it was uncommon for interracial couples, you know. And right. so that was kind of one reason for, uh, you know, in certain circles, the suppression of that story, uh, you know, which took place, of course, in the 1960s and then became very well known, uh, you know, more than a decade later. But, um, you know, I know Betty and Barney Hill's uh, niece, uh, or, or Betty Hill's niece, I guess, uh, Kathleen Martin, and she had co authored the book with uh, Stanton Friedman, Captured. And uh, the last time I saw. Uh, actually, the only time I saw her, she was with Stanton, and it was the very night uh, that Stanton's, uh, the night before Stanton's son passed away. It was very sad. This was just a few months ago. We were at an event together. And I know 
Kath, uh, uh, you know, and I, I, I know the story based on you know her, Kathleen's, re- uh, 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 you know, recollections of, of what Betty talked about and what she and Stanton wrote about. Um, it's a very interesting story, but there are aspects of it that I've always wondered about, and 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 really just to kind of go over those briefly here. Betty talked about how her sister had seen a UFO a couple of weeks beforehand, and so she had been kind of she'd had UFOs on her mind uh, after the initial uh, you know encounter they had described that they described Betty and Barney how they'd gotten home and they were missing several hours but in truth they'd also stopped several times well I shouldn't say they were missing several hours they got home much later than they expected that they should have been and I know that Patrick Weege and his I think field guide to extraterrestrial beings and whatnot um, had talked about uh, you know, literally being maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of they they were forty five minutes to an hour uh, later getting home than they should have been. But they also mention that they had stopped and that they had watched this craft min, uh, many times on their way home. That they had observed it using binoculars and they'd stopped at least more than once to do that. If they had done that, indeed, if they had stopped for let's say you know if they if they stopped maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, three times and and their average time stopped would be. 12 minutes and at the most maybe 15 you can see that you know you're going to be getting into the neighborhood of 30 to 40 minutes and if there were 45 minutes late getting home toss in a couple extra stoplights you know on the way home and you can begin to see how easily time could slip away so uh, i'm not again trying to discredit them but you know we we often don't look at this skeptically and say are there other reasons why that the interrupted journey as it was referred to in the book i believe by john fuller uh was the interrupted journey actually just a journey that was, you know, more lengthy for reasons that are obvious to us, that they'd stopped and they'd observed this thing several times? And then Betty goes on to start describing these dreams that she had had in relation to the incident and things that had been going on. And uh, in the dreams, she had first begun to describe beings that had uh, looked very human. And I think that at least in one instance, she had described them as having spoken with a German accent. Interesting. What's, yeah, what's going on with that? Especially... We know about these alleged Nazi UFO connections and things like that. There were a bunch of little guys with black hair and flight suits who spoke with German accents on board this ship. And then Dr. Benjamin Simon then, of course, administers hypnosis. This is after a good, you know, more than a year after the incident. And, of course, in the time that it uh, elapsed between the incident and the uh, hypnosis session, they had appeared at a UFO meetup and they had actually lectured and spoken about it. Betty and Barney had had many times, uh, many uh, opportunities to share Betty's dreams and talk about it, even though Barney didn't seem to like to have to talk about these things. Betty had gone over these repeating dreams that she continued to have, and Betty, uh, while she liked to try and talk about this and claim that there had been something that had happened, Barney was entirely uncomfortable with that. And then after the hypnosis session, Barney even said... um, or, no, I apologize. Uh, ben Simon, the uh, the uh, hypnotist, had actually said that what he felt that the Hills had experienced was a mutually shared psychological aberration based on the dream recollections of Betty Hill. Now, those things are all interesting to take into consideration. There are also physical things, though, that should be juxtaposed against those that I call the dirt. One of the most uh, and one of the key aspects of this story that really should be taken into consideration is the fact that um, Barney Hill apparently suffered from warts in his genital regions and uh, and had been very uh, you know self-conscious about this and had gone actually and had these surgically removed uh, as a result of you know something that he believed had happened during that experience and in the hypnosis session he recalled there being what he described as a suction device 
that was used administered to that area, and that in conjunction with where the, the, the rim of the suction had been, he claimed that he had actually developed these strange growths. So if there is some physical component to it, that's one of them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very interesting that there are so many aspects of that report that are less often really looked at critically and carefully. Instead, I think that they're really more often just kind of sensationalized and thrust into the grid, you know, so that they fit into the mold, so to speak, of what we expect for an alien abduction. And very less often do we look at all the different aspects and the way that the different accounts change and the different stories and things like that. And then we go back and forth and back and forth on this star map that, that you know, was allegedly produced. Yeah. You know, I think that there's so much more to a story like that. And what it begins to show us is that, you know, while there is a potential for an extraterrestrial presence or something else, aspects of this story seem to be incredibly, uh, <laughs> you know, reliant on what appeared to be earthbound technologies. You know, for instance, you know, the administration of a, of a pregnancy test utilizing a needle, things like this. Again, if there was a technology that was utilizing an incredibly advanced uh, modality of traveling through space and the cosmos, why are they going to come to Earth and they're going to administer what was at that time maybe considered an innovative variety of of uh, pregnancy tests? But, you know, again, if, if there's a civilization hundreds of years more advanced, supposedly, than yours or mine, why are they going to be utilizing Earth technologies that are on par with what we already have? Why did Betty initially describe these as people on that craft? And some people would maybe, you know, uh, counter that because, again, I don't think that, 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 if I remember that correctly, uh, that that was based on her actual recollections. It was based on dreams that she had had, which that encounter changed as recalled through hypnosis. And she and Barney did seem to describe very similar things. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of stuff about the Betty Barney Hill uh, abduction that should be taken into consideration. If we apply that to other abductions, again, we begin to see this, well, a few things actually begin to emerge. I noticed that there's always this sexual component. And often in the case of abductees, uh, you know, we see that uh, early in life they have suffered from things such as electrical shocks, uh, different kinds of physical abuse, things like that. Kathleen, uh, no, 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 it was uh, it was uh, Carol Rainey, the the late uh, or the, uh, the 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 I guess the ex-wife of the late researcher Bud Hopkins had authored an article about this where she had talked about the you know some of, I don't think that her issue was the the similarities between the people, but I noticed from reading her article that there were a lot of similarities between the abductees that Bud Hopkins had worked with. And I think that while in some instances people clearly have had things happen and that they're actually being subjected to some variety of intelligence that is literally observing or, or collecting data about them, in a lot of other instances the popular alien abduction meme is something that enough people are familiar with that they can literally be led to or even be encouraged to believe that they too have been participants in some sort of an ongoing abduction sure. scenario. So sure, some people have had something happen. There are a lot more people out there who have had either something other than extraterrestrial interaction or they've had nothing at all and they've been allowed to create in their minds a psychological substructure for an event that never really transpired. Going back to uh, the pregnancy test that Betty Hill said was done to her, I believe in the book that you said that uh, I think it's called am, uh, amniocentesis. Mm -hmm. That's correct. I'm probably butchering that, but uh, you know I think that that was invented shortly after that incident, and it seems to me that instead of it being this, um, you know, intergalactic, you know, advanced race that maybe it is some kind of government organization or intelligence organization or military 
that would probably had that technology already and just hadn't put it out until just a couple of years later. Right, yeah, that's and, and that's another aspect of the UFO singularity, again, that I'm trying to drive home, is that especially in the instance of, of there being certain technologies already here on Earth, Yeah. what we begin to see is that whatever this technology is, somebody here in our midst is utilizing some of this stuff, uh, albeit covertly, but they're doing so, and it's, we're really just right behind, in some instances, certain technologies that are being utilized. Um, in, the, uh, in the essay that I refer to, uh, in the, uh, I believe it's the uh, sixth chapter of, of the book. It's actually it's the fifth chapter of the book. But Martin Cannon, who wrote the uh, essay, The Controllers, I cite that uh, that article throughout that chapter, and he gets into a lot of these different things. And there's that one portion where he, I love what he says is, why, if we take UFO abduction accounts at face value, are the advanced aliens using an old technology, or at very least a technology that's maybe a couple of years ahead of what we expect to be able to harness, and uh, and it's a technology that may soon be rendered obsolescent if it hasn't been so rendered already. And so he wrote, I'm reminded of the charming anachronisms in the old Flash Gordon serials where swords and spaceships clashed continually. Do they also watch black and white television on Zeta Reticula? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I read that part. <laughs> you know, that's that's a, a good quote. It is a good quote, and it's good enough to where I'd claim it if it weren't, you know, already Martin Cannon's. But, you know, I understand, too, that uh, you know he'd been a guest on the popular Paracast program, and uh, Don Ecker, I think, had done an interview with him. Um, Cannon has begun to back away. He, he apparently got incredibly paranoid about aspects of, of, of that essay and what he'd written, and then he started backing away from that theory. Um, and I think a lot of people would probably say that, you know, there's a conspiracy involved there. Folks, I believe there's actually a conspiracy here. We're dealing with a real phenomenon. <laughs> this is an alert, people. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an alert. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, people are going to listen to this. Thing. Micah Hanks might be crazier than... Alex Jones. This week, <laughs> what is it? Today on Glenn Beck, we're going to be talking with Alex Jones, <laughs> or not? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. But the point, the point is, though, is you know, I think I think rather than being a researcher who has to say this is the thing, is this cult of, well, you know, we, you could use Alex Jones as an example. Alex has gone so far down the rabbit hole with what he does that it's like he is expected that he has to be something every time that he is on camera. He expects that he's got to... Do you think he was really that angry and really... Do you think he was really... Uh, that he was so angry that he had to scream at Piers Morgan, you know, and the minute you try and take our guns, we're going to send you back to Britain. We're going to send you back your red coat. You know what I mean? That, 1776 will begin again. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know that that whole—it's a character that he has begun to be, and that he feels yeah. he always has to present in order to uphold right. the image of Alex. You know, and I think that so many researchers are the same way. We get into this sort of stuff. We get into this field of study. We lay claim to one aspect of what may be a greater, a much vaster and greater truth, um, and then later on down the road. And this is the. Tell me if you haven't noticed this with some of these types. They they get out there, and even when there is evidence, credible evidence to the contrary, of claims that they have touted in the past, they will either find a way to argue around those claims and come back to their initial premise, or they will just dismiss any argument to the contrary outright, because what 
they have become is not a researcher who puts forth information based on the merit of the information. They have become a totem that represents an idea. And as soon as you try and remove that idea, it's as good as chopping down that totem. It is what they are. And these people lay claim and hold on to with fierce, with fierce you know, protection, these ideas that they put forth. And as a, as a, as a responsible researcher, uh, you know, I found myself doing this. Uh, I, I look back at articles I've written. Hell, the, the title of my damned website, the Graylian Report. Graylian is a reference to gray aliens. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I was I, I used that when I when I came up with that term. It's a portmanteau, a combination of two words. You know, I, I used it more as cultural commentary on extraterrestrial life, UFOs, things like that. The late Philip Coppins had, uh, you know, asserted that he he thought that there was a holy grail reference in there, and you know, although that was not an intention. Uh, you know, Herman Melville also was was told by literary critics later in his career that the uh, you know Moby Dick wasn't just about a guy trying to kill a whale, even though Melville said it was. Critics said, no, you actually were subliminally putting forth you know the quest for that great uh, you know unattainable whatever it is, and uh, you know the, you know every man has their Moby Dick that they go out and try and go after. And so, however you want to look at it, you know I, I've accepted that Grail reference, uh, you know, on behalf of the late Mister Coppins, uh, who I called a friend. Uh, you know, into this mythos of the Graylian. And, and, but, you know, at the outset, it wasn't that. It, it has become a lot of things. At the outset, it was actually the myth of the Graylian. No, but uh, at the outset, it really was uh, a reference to gray aliens, which is something that, as we're talking about here, I feel that that is completely removed, really, from my own research into ufology. And frankly, I wonder at times if there is even, uh, by all intents and purposes, a logistical, legitimate extraterrestrial component to any of this at all. I, 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 really, I really wonder if there is. And so a good researcher has to be able to change their mind at times. And of course, I love that, that word Graylian, and it, it remains good cultural commentary, which is really at, at the outset, you know, what I'd hope to do with a website like Graylian Report anyway. But there are many other researchers out there that get really protective of their ideas, and they don't want to have to give it up. I do think the late Bud Hopkins was one of those who really was so married to what he felt that the summation of his research was about that he he had to he he became it and at you know later in life it was either you know there was no looking back it had to be alien abduction and there were people all over the world that were being abducted and all this sort of stuff whereas you got someone like Whitley Strieber who has questioned the nature of his abduction he knows something happened to him he'll speak very matter of factly about it he's never been one who has said with certainty there are alien beings from Zeta Two Reticuli, and they're the ones that took me. You know, if I saw those guys in a police lineup, I could I could ID them for you. No, Whitley's always been open-minded, even though he was the experiencer. And so, I have to say that you know you have to be able to change with the times. Anyway, bringing that back to Martin Cannon, who I reference in the book, he did that. And even though I reference his work in my book, he later came back in you know and, and questioned his own theories in that long essay, The Controllers. A good researcher should do that. And so anything that I put forth in the UFO singularity, I don't expect people to take that as a gospel truth. It's my own observations and I think, albeit at times, a very informed variety of speculation, but nonetheless it is speculative insight into the ongoing UFO mystery. That's the best I can really hope to bring anybody. And really, with the vast potentials that await us in terms of studying and trying to understand UFOs, that's the best any of us can hope to do. Well, Michael, we know you got to get on here pretty soon. Um, yeah, and well put. I could <laughs> agree more. Well, you know, it's it's long-winded as I'm known for doing. But, <laughs> no, but, it's excellent. Thank you. 
Well, you know, I mean, I, I do feel that, uh, you know, really, we, we've all got to be willing to change our mind just as well as open them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Michael, what's next for you? What's uh, what's on the what's in the on on the uh, agenda, so well, to speak? You know, um, I back during the summer visited the prestigious uh, Rhine uh, Center down in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, the Rhine is a location where uh, consciousness research, uh, you know, uh, scientific investigation into claims of various paranormal phenomena, including especially psychic phenomenon, uh, is currently underway and has been for the better part of the last century. I, um, I look at this singularity awaiting humankind, uh, whether it be technological, whether it be a... A, a spiritual metamorphosis uh, that uh, so many had expected along with the lines of a 12, 21, 12, and these sorts of things. Uh, whatever that singularity archetype is, I think that as humans change, and if we utilize technology to implement that change in various ways, I do feel that in the future, in addition to being able to understand perceptual levels of reality that may help us come to a greater determination of what UFO phenomena may be, we're also going to probably begin to harness various psychic abilities and functional telepathy and things along those lines, utilizing this sort of technology. And uh, and I think that uh, you know I would like to personally you know investigate. Uh, there there are so many other things. There are so many different things. I've already got ideas for different books in the work right now. But I I do think that you know on down the road we're going to see a similar treatment of psychic phenomenon. I don't know, we'll call it the psychic singularity or something like that, but there will probably be a book that looks at the way that we will augment ourselves. And literally, rather than looking at you know how that will affect our perception of ufology, it may be you know, how we will change as humans and our thought processes and the way that we will you know, become, <laughs> who knows, uh, psychics. We might all be ESP singularitarians in the future. So... So that's one idea. We'll, we'll see where that goes. And, of course, if people want to follow my exploits, graylianreport.com. No, we're going we're gonna to be psychics linked to each other, but you've got to log into Facebook first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, you've got you to link up to the grid. <laughs> Michael, where can everybody get your book? It's available in bookstores everywhere and on Amazon.com. Of course, if you want to visit the Graylian Report bookstore, just go there to the website, and you'll see Graylian Bookstore. It's uh, there in the toolbar at the top of the page. I uh, always want to tell people to check out our podcast that we put out each week. We're going to have some nice stuff coming up here in the next uh, little bit, maybe even some stuff for subscribers who want to get a little more than the weekly Mouth of the South that they get with me and the, uh, the Graylian Report. And uh, there's all kinds of good stuff. Check out this, this new article that I've got up over there right now about what they call, and guys, you might find this interesting too, the Area 51 of Appalachia. Did you know that there was one over here on the East Coast? No, I didn't. No, but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. check it out. As a matter of fact, it's right there on the Tennessee-Kentucky border. You guys might want to go check it is out. Is it really? Is it Fort Campbell? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh well, we're close yeah. to there. What a surprise. There's a, there's a <laughs> lot of strange activity going on in, uh, around Kokomo, Indiana, too. Yeah, well, you know, Coco, you know yeah. that, that's a little further out, but you know what? Uh, Fort Campbell, we could, we could just plan a field trip here, boys. Yeah, sounds good to me, man. Sweet. Uh, and, and speaking, <laughs> That'd be awesome. If I if I ever do get over there to Music City, USA, we'll have to catch up and have a beverage. Okay. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm down for that. Absolutely. It's definitely, guys. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure joining you here on the uh, Conspiracy Normal Podcast. That podcast with a name that by God I'll never forget. <laughs> thank you, Micah. Hey, stay on the line, and uh, yeah. I can't recommend your uh, podcast enough. Grayling Report. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, keeps me in stitches. So. Yeah. 
with the Alex Jones impressions. <laughs> I'm going to start doing a phony Alex Jones podcast every week. <laughs> you should do that. Put that on your subscriber. Uh. The uncensored true story. <laughs> Reading this book. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to close it out here, but uh, stay on the line with us uh, real quick, Micah. You got and, it. Uh, we'll be Luke. Anything you want to add, or we'll go for it. All right. We'll, we'll be back on Conspiranormal. Hey, and we are back. What'd you think of Micah Hanks? Uh, he was awesome. Quite an enjoyable interview, I have to say. Yeah, he was awesome. Again, Very informative. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'd like to once again say that I'm jealous of people who can speak so fluently. Me too, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I want to read something here. Oh, did you want to say something? No, nah, go for it. I want to read something here. I may not read the whole thing because uh, we're... <clears throat> trying to keep to a certain amount of time. But this is a blog that was written by a professor of journalism. And I'll be honest, I do not remember the guy's name. His name is John something. But I'll try to post it up in the notes. Uh, this is about Sandy Hook. And the title of it is, is The Sandy Hook Massacre Unanswered Questions and Missing Information. Now, this was criticized on CNN for being heartless to the uh, memory of the children and the other victims at Sandy Hook. But I want to read it here. Just to really just lay out what this guy is really saying and what he's talking about. So, I'm going to go through it. Okay, go on. Inconsistencies and anomalies abound when one turns an analytical eye to news of the Newtown School Massacre. The public's general sense of the event's validity and faith in its resolution suggests a deepened credulousness born from a world where almost all news and information is electronically mediated and controlled. The condition is reinforced through the corporate media's unwillingness to push hard questions vis-a-vis Connecticut and federal authorities who together bottlenecked information while invoking prior restraint through threats of prosecutorial action against journalists and the broader citizenry seeking to interpret the event on social media. That was the um, head of the uh, Connecticut State Police that said that if you were to put out uh, other stories... Any kind of statuses on Facebook, they they would track you down. They were going to track you down and arrest you. Yeah, right. Along these lines, on December 19th, the Connecticut State Police assigned individual personnel to each of the 26 families who lost a loved one at Sandy Hook Elementary. The families have requested no press interviews, state police assert on their behalf, and we are asking that this request be honored. The de facto gag order will be in effect until the investigation concludes, now forecast to be several months away, even though lone gunman Adam Lanza has been confirmed as the sole culprit. With the exception of an usual and apparently contrived appearance by Emily Parker's alleged father, that's the video we were talking about last time, victims' family members have been almost wholly absent from public scrutiny. What can be gleaned from this and similar coverage raises many more questions and glaring inconsistencies than answers. While it sounds like an outrageous claim, one is left to inquire whether the Sandy Hook shooting ever took place at least in the way law enforcement authorities and the nation's news media have described. Now let me say that I do believe that something happened. I don't believe in the whole actor thing. I don't believe that it's a right. completely contrived event. Because that's a really well-orchestrated event, if sure. that's true. But I think he has some good points here. All right. The accidental medical examiner. 
An especially important yet greatly underreported feature of the Sandy Hook affair is the wholly bizarre performance of Connecticut's top medical examiner, H. Wayne Carver II, at a December 15th press conference. Carver's unusual remarks and behavior warrant close consideration because in light of his professional notoriety, they appear remarkably amateurish and out of character. H. Wayne Carver II has an extremely self-assured, almost swaggering presence in Connecticut State Administration. In early 2012, Carver threatened to vacate his position because of state budget cuts and streamlining measures that threatened his professional autonomy over the projects and personnel he oversaw. Along these lines, the pathologist has gone to excessive lengths to, determine, to demonstrate his findings and expert opinion in court proceedings. For example, in a famous criminal case, Carver put a euthanized pig through a wood chipper so jurors could match striations on the bone fragments with a few ounces of evidence the prosecutors said were on the remains of the victim. One would therefore expect Carver to be in his element while identifying and verifying the exact ways in which Sandy Hook's children and teachers met their violent demise. Yet the H. Wayne Carver who showed up to the December 15th press conference is an almost entirely different man, appearing apprehensive and uncertain as if he is at a significant remove from the post-mortem operation he had overseen. The multiple gaffes, discrepancies, and hedges in response to reporters' astute questions suggest that he's either under coercion or an imposter. While the latter sounds untenable, it would go a long way in explaining his sub-pedestrian grasp of medical procedures and terminology. Uh, now... <clears throat> With this in mind, extended excerpts from this exchange are worthy of recounting here in print. Uh, then he goes on. He does a he has a uh, a transcript here of what the says. That's just pretty much um, contradictory information. I'm not going to read it here because it's just going to take a whole Way lot of time. As I wanted to hit the hit the bullet points here. Uh, so the next bullet point about this. More unanswered questions and inconsistencies. In addition to Carver's remarks, several additional chronological and evidentiary contradictions in the official version of the Sandy Hook shooting are cause for serious consideration and leave doubt in terms of how the event transpired vis-a-vis the way authorities and major media outlets have presented it. It is now well known that early on, journalists reported that Adam Lanza's brother, Ryan Lanza, was reported to be the gunman, and that pistols were used in the shooting rather than a rifle. Yet these are merely the tip of the iceberg. Remember, Adam Lanza was found with guns on him, and the uh, medical examiner said that the children were shot killed, with a rifle. With with a rifle. Bullets, yeah. They also said that uh, they had not... Uh, taken the parents to identify the bodies of the children, but they just showed them pictures. Which is interesting. It may, may or may not be the proper procedure, but it is a little odd. When did the gunman arrive? After Adam Lanza fatally shot and killed his mother at his residence, he drove himself to the elementary school campus, arriving one half hour after classes had commenced. Dressed in black, Lanza proceeds completely unnoticed through an oddly vacant parking lot with a military-style rifle and shoots his way through double glass doors and a brand new yet apparently poorly engineered security system. Further initial press accounts suggest how no school personnel or students heard gunshots and no 911 calls are made until after Lanza begins firing inside the facility. It was a lovely day, Sandy Hook 4th grade teacher Theodore Vargas said, and then suddenly an unfathomably sunk gunshots rang out. I can't even remember how many, Vargas said. 
The recollections contrast sharply with an updated version of Lanza's arrival where at 4.30 a.m. he walked up to the front entrance and fired at least a half dozen rounds in the glass doors. The thunderous shout, sound of Lanza blowing and opening big enough to walk through the locked school door caused Principal Don Hawksprung and school psychologist Mary Sherlock to bolt from a nearby meeting room to investigate. He shot and killed them both as he, they ran toward him. Breaching the school security system in such a way would have likely triggered some automatic alert of school personnel. Further, why would the school's administrators run toward an armed man who has just noisily blasted his way into the building? I think that's an interesting point. Two other staff members attended, attending the meeting with Hotsprung and Sherlock sustained injuries in the hell of bullets, but returned to the aforementioned meeting room and managed to call the 911. This contrasted with earlier reports where the first 911 call claimed students were trapped in a classroom with the adult shooter who had two guns. Recordings of the first police dispatch following the 911 call at 9.35 and 50 seconds indicate that someone thinks there's someone shooting in the building. There is a clear distinction between potentially hearing shots somewhere in the building and being almost mortally caught in a hell of bullets. How did the gunman fire so many shots in such a little time? According to Carver and State Police, Lanza shot each victim between 3 and 11 times during a 5 to 7 minute span. If one is to average this out to 7 bullets per individual, excluding misses, Lanza shot 182 times, or once every 2 seconds. Yet according to the official story, Lanza was the sole assassin and armed with only one weapon. Thus, if misses and changing the gun's 30-shot magazine at least six times are added to the equation, Lanza must have been averaging about one shot per second. Extremely skilled use of a single firearm for a young man with absolutely no military training, and he was on the verge of being institutionalized. Still, an accurate rending of the event is even more difficult to arrive at because the chief medical examiner admittedly has no idea exactly how the children were shot or whether a struggle ensued. Where is the photo and video evidence? Photographic and video evidence is at once profuse at lacking in terms of its capacity to demonstrate that a mass shooting took place on the scale described by authorities. For example, in an era of ubiquitous video surveillance of public buildings, especially no visual evidence of Lanza's violent entry has emerged, and while studio snapshots of the, the Sandy Hook Williams victims abound, there is little, if, if any, eyewitness testimony of anyone who observed the corpses except for Carver and his staff, and they appear almost as confused about the conditions of the deceased as any layperson watching televised coverage of the event. Nor are there any routine eyewitness photo or video of evidence of the crime scene's aftermath. Broken glass, blasted security locks and doors, bullet casings and holes, bloodied walls and floors, all of which are common to such investigations and reportage. Why were medical personnel turned away from the crime scene? Oddly enough, medical personnel are forced to set up their operation not at the school where the dead and injured lay, but rather at the fire station several hundred feet away. This flies in the face of standard medical operating procedure where personnel are situated as close to the scene as possible. There is no doubt that the school had ample room to accommodate such personnel. Yet medical responders who rushed to Sandy Hook Elementary upon receiving word of the tragedy were denied entry to the school and forced to set up primary and secondary tri triages off school grounds and wait for the injured to be brought to them. That's interesting too. Shortly after the shooting, uh, as other ambulances from neighboring communities rolled up, sirens blaring, the first responders slowly realized that their training would be tragically underutilized on this horrible day. You may not be able to save everybody, but you damn well try. 44-year-old emergency medical technician James Wolf told NBC News, and when we didn't have the opportunity to put our skills into action, it's difficult. 
In light of this, who were the qualified medical practitioners pronounced the 20 children, seven adults dead? Who decided that none could be revived? Carver and his staff are apparently the only medical personnel to have attended to the victims, yet this was in the post-mortem conducted several hours later. Such slipshod handling of the crime scene leaves the state of Connecticut open to a potential array of hefty civil claims by families of the slain. Did a mass evacuation of the school take place? Let's see, I almost really just skipped that one. Because, uh, that's actually... I think that kind of fits in with his idea that I don't agree with of uh, it being uh, completely faked. Soundbite prism and the will to believe. Outside of a handful of citizen journalists and alternative media commentators, Sandy Hook's dramatically shifting factual and circumstantial terrain has escaped serious critique because it is presented through major media's carefully orchestrated prism of select sound bites along a widespread and long-standing cultural impulse to accept the pronouncements of experts, be they be muse physicians, high-ranking law enforcement officers, or political leaders demonstrating emotionally grounded concern. Political scientist W. Lance Bennett calls this the news media's authority disorder bias. Whether the world is returned to a safe, normal place, Bennett writes, or whether the very idea of a normal world is called into question, the news is preoccupied with order, along with related questions of whether authorities are capable of establishing or restoring it. Despite Carver's bizarre performance and law enforcement authorities' inability to settle on and relay simple facts, media management's impulse to assure audiences and readerships of the Newtown community's inevitable adjustment to its trauma and loss with the aid of the government's protective oversight however incompetent they may be, far surpasses a willingness to undermine this now almost universal news media narrative with messy questions and suggestions of intrigue. This well-worn script is one the public has been continued to accept. If few people relied on such media to develop their worldview, this would hardly be a concern, yet this is regrettably not the case. The Sandy Hook tragedy was on a larger scale than the past year's numerous slaughters, including the Wisconsin Sikh Temple shooting and the Batman Theater shooting in Colorado. It also included glaringly illogical exercises and pronouncements by authorities alongside remarkably unusual evidentiary fissures indistinguishable by an American political imagination cultivated to believe that the corporate government and military sophisticated system organized crime is largely confined to Hollywood-style storylines or really existing malfeasance and crises are without exception returned to normalcy. If recent history is a prelude, the likelihood of citizens collectively assessing and questioning Sandy Hook is limited, even given the event's overtly superficial trappings. While the incident is ostensibly being handled by Connecticut law enforcement, early reports indicate how federal authorities were on the scene as the 911 call was received. Regardless of where one stands on the Second Amendment and gun control, it is not unreasonable to suggest the Obama administration complicity or direct oversight of an incident that has in very short order sparked a national debate on the very topic, and not coincidentally remains a key piece of Obama's political platform. The move to railroad this program through with the aid of major media and an irrefutable barrage of children's portraits, heartfelt platitudes, and ostensible tears neutralizes a quest for genuine evidence, reasoned observation, and in the case of Newtown, honest and responsible law enforcement. Moreover, to suggest that Obama is not capable of deploying such techniques to achieve political ends is to similarly place one's faith in image and interpretation above substance and established fact, the exact inclination that in some has brought America to such an impasse. 
Alright, he got a little preachy at the end there. But, I think he raises some pretty valid questions. Woo, man. And I think that uh, Anderson Cooper on CNN just couldn't get his head around why somebody would just dare question the official line. Yeah. How dare, How dare you? we? How dare you, know, you question in this country. the media? No way. Well, it's getting late, man. So late for you, maybe. For you, yeah, for me, it's getting late. For you, the, the party's just beginning. I gotta go get some. <laughs> I gotta go get some boneyard brew. All right, man. Will you go get your boneyard brew? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No. That uh, the show that we went to in the graveyard at Atlanta, like they, oh, were, yeah, yeah. they were calling cheap uh, Genesee ninety nine cents per twenty four ounce. They were calling it boneyard brew to upsell it. Yeah, we were hanging out. We were hanging out in the in a graveyard together, yeah. <laughs> With all the Masonic, uh, Masonic headstones. Graves, yeah, that's pretty tight. <laughs> um, but on, on a future show, I was, I was thinking kind of a little bit while Michael was talking earlier, uh, on some future shows, you know, I've been kind of looking into the Orme again, uh, orbitally rearranged monatomic gold and listening to that long lecture. Still didn't finish it. <sighs> it was exhausting. <laughs> Even for you across the room. Yeah. But I'd like to talk about that once I figure it all out, you know, which I haven't yet. I haven't found anything any, about its interactions with actual humans or ingestion or anything. Well, you need to bring some in, and if you ascend in the <laughs> middle of the show, we'll, we'll understand. Well, like me and my brother were talking about, the problem is finding finding the actual, the real thing. You know, that's that's going to be the hard part. But, but that and... Um, I thought it'd be kind of cool to mention uh, the island of High Brazil. Especially since we found out that it's like in the location of uh, where a vortex similar to Bermuda Triangle should be, which would explain the fog around the island and everything. Where is this? High Brazil. Uh, um, so, I guess I'll, I'll give you a little short story on it real quick. I thought this was like a fictional. Uh, well, make it quick. Well, it, it, it's, it's supposedly fictional, but if you, if you, if you, even if you look at it on Wikipedia, it has uh, maps as far back as the 1300s where cartographers have it um, illustrated off the coast of Ireland. And it goes from uh, the 1300s all the way up to, what was it, late 1700s? The island is pictured there on every map. And, and now it doesn't exist today. It's gone. Man, you never cease to amaze me. Why? Just, I can just come up with some interesting stuff. I think I have heard of that before. Yeah. Well, I I got it because I was watching Ancient Aliens, and it was that episode. No, no. Look, it was it was that it was that. <laughs> when episode. you start something with I was watching Ancient Aliens. No, but but, th- but this wasn't on the show at all. This that, this wasn't on the show. It was that episode about the guy who was walking through the woods, and he uh, w- he was in the military walking through the woods, like due to perimeter check or whatever. And he he saw the craft in the woods and he touched it and he got the binary that's code. Rindles, that's the Rendlesham Forest. Uh, yeah, Rendlesham Forest. Yeah. Case, yeah. And he, he got the binary code in his mind and he had the computer programmer decode it and it gave him coordinates. Right. Well, I typed in the coordinates to see what they were talking about and it points to High Brazil off the coast of Ireland. Weird. Get all this material together and let's talk about it on the show. All right. Got about a month. So. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> All right, man. Well, next week we will have uh, Russ Dizdar coming on, and he uh, is going to talk about mind control, MK Ultra stuff, something that's as near and dear to our hearts here at Conspiranormal. <laughs> and uh, if there's nothing else you want to add, I think we're going to call it a night. That'll do. All right. Everybody have a good night. 
Thank you for listening to and sweet dreams. And Chris, you wanna you wanna uh, close this out? Alright, thanks Chris. Y'all have a good night on Conspiracy. Join us next time on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.